you daydream, you daydream about your future. And if you're like most, your daydreams are pretty materialistic. Uh, When we daydream about ourselves, we tend not to dream about what kind of people we will be in the future, about how we will be better people, how we will in the future uh, love better and live better. No, we tend to dream about how we will have a better vacation or a better house or a better car. Now, what's really interesting about that is that those of us who are parents, when we daydream about a great future for our kids, our dreams for them tend not to be materialistic at all. Studies show that when parents share their dreams for their kids, they never dream about how their kids will have bigger houses or better cars. Loving parents, when they dream about their kids, dream that they'll have fulfilled and meaningful work lives and lasting relationships and that their kids will grow to be the best people that they can be. The fact that parents tend to hold spiritual rather than materialistic dreams for their kids proves something. Researchers would say that our dreams for our kids prove that deep down we really understand that material things do not bring the true happiness and joy to life that we're all looking for. And just like loving parents daydream about truly a true good life for their children, you have a heavenly father who daydreams about you. And when God daydreams about you, God does not dream about stuff you could have. When God daydreams about you, He dreams about the joyful person you could be. So today, let's study what the Bible says about God's dream for your life. Would you please turn your Bible to the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 12. The book of Isaiah is the first of the Old Testament prophetic books that come right after Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. So as you find the Isaiah the book, let me introduce Isaiah the prophet. In biblical language, the word prophet does not mean someone who foretells the future. Uh, in the Bible, a prophet is someone who bears a message from God, is a messenger from God, who speaks God's word to God's people. But here is something amazing about the words of the biblical prophets like Isaiah. And this is so amazing that it just causes me to praise God and bow down before his worship all the more. The words of the prophets in Scripture are miraculous in their timeless relevance. The words of Isaiah in Scripture are miraculous in the way that they are simultaneously relevant to every generation of God's people. You can take any passage in uh, the book of Isaiah and you can see how the words were relevant to God's people 
who lived and first received the message as it was written down in 600 B.C. But then, as a second layer, you can also see how Isaiah's words are also relevant foretellings of the Messiah, of Jesus, who came 600 years after the words were written down. And then, as a third layer, you can hear the timeless relevance of Isaiah's words to us who follow Jesus today. In fact, you can say that the words of Isaiah apply to us most of all, because we are the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate receivers that God had in mind when he gave that message first to Isaiah 2,600 years ago. The words God gave Isaiah are miraculous words of timeless relevance. And this timeless relevance, it should just cause you to bow down in worship before God as it has for those who studied these words down through the centuries. Now, listen uh, to these miraculous words from Isaiah in chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, where God describes his daydream about you. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1, God is speaking. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. And proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord. For he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. In these words, God puts up a description of what goes through his mind when he daydreams about you. I call it a daydream because of God's twice-repeated refrain in verse 1 and verse 4. In that day, you will say. When God daydreams about you, He envisions a day. He envisions a day that could be today. A day when you are full of joy. Do you see the joy in verses 3 and 6 and verse 3? God envisions a day when I, with joy, draw water from the wells of His salvation. And then in verse 6, God envisions a day. A day when I will sing for joy because I know that I know that the Holy One is with me. But these words from Isaiah not only contain a description of the joy that God dreams for me, These words also contain a description of the three lifestyle choices that are necessary for this joyfulness to come true. 
in my life. So let's take a look at these three lifestyle choices. God says that his joy becomes a dream come true in my life when I praise, when I trust, and when I thank him. So these are the three lifestyle choices that lead me to the joy God dreams for me. The lifestyle choices are, verse 1, a lifestyle of praise. Verse 2, a lifestyle of trust. And verse 4, a lifestyle of thanks. The first choice that leads me to this dream come true life of joy is choosing a lifestyle of praise. Uh, In the first words of his daydream, God says, In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Now what does it mean? To choose a lifestyle of praise. Well, first let's uh, start with what praise is not. Praising God is not just saying nice things about God or even to God. Uh, The Bible teaches that if my praise is just an exercise of my lips, then it is flattery. Uh, Referring to this in Isaiah chapter 29. Uh, verse 13, God says, These people come near to me with their mouths and praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So God doesn't want lip service. The Bible's definition of praising God is not flattering God with my mouth. It is my heart expressing sincere admiration for God as a person. King David expresses this kind of admiration for God when he writes these words in Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. My heart says of you, God, seek His face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Notice that David's Praise is a lifestyle choice. God, I want to dwell in your presence all the days of my life. This is not just an hour of worship on Sunday. This is a lifestyle of praise. This choosing to look to God in the car in the morning. It's whispering worship at noon in the office. Or it's praising God and thanking Him in your living room at night. And verse 1 also declares, contains a description of the truth that should prompt me to this endless praise. I'm referring to that line, Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. This is a perfect summary of what God has done for me and for you in Jesus. In His mercy, God has turned His anger away from me. It is so important that I understand the biblical truth of God's anger against my sin. Because the only way I will ever be able to come to a true appreciation of God's love for me is if I first fully understand the depth of God's anger toward me and my sin. 
Only when I understand God's anger can I fully appreciate God's surprising mercy toward me in Jesus whose sacrifice turns away God's anger. If I understand God's anger, I can experience God's mercy. And if I truly experience God's surprising, undeserved mercy, I will be filled with this spontaneous, endless, all day long praise to God. And I know some of you are saying, you're very practical and you're saying, I get it. Uh, God's big dream for me is that I'm going to be a worshiper 24-7. What is it about God that he daydreams about people praising him? I mean, is God needy or something? Uh, why does God daydream that I become a person who adopts a lifestyle of praising Him? Those are fair questions, and they deserve answers. The first answer is no. God is not needy. God does not need my praise. God deserves my praise, but He does not need it. So why does God daydream about me becoming a worshiper? Why does God daydream about me praising Him? It's because God in His love knows that I need it. God knows that the more I give Him praise, the more I receive His comfort. Did you notice that connection in verse 1? Verse 1 begins with me praising God and then ends with me receiving His comfort. Here's how it works. The more I develop a heart habit of worship, then the more I see God in His immensity and His infinity and His incomparable brilliancy. And then the more I see how big my God is, the more my problems shrink down to actual size in comparison. When I focus on God's world-creating power, my financial problems are put into perspective. When I focus on God's immeasurable love, my co-worker problems seem puny. When I focus on God's eternity, my time pressure problems today and tomorrow shrink to actual size. The more I praise God, the more I receive His comfort in my life. With a lifestyle of praise, I can go through my day whispering words of worship to God from my heart saying, God, you are all wise. Nothing has ever confused you. Would you help me in this decision that I have to make right now? God, you are immense and infinite in your sovereign control. Would you help me so that I can just place this issue that I'm tempted to worry about in your all-powerful hands. Praise is looking into God's face with heartfelt worship and wonder and finding that in the process, my heart is unburdened from worried and I'm filled with God's comfort. And that's what God daydreams about. God daydreams about that day when I choose a lifestyle of praise that leads me to receive His comfort. 
But praise is just the first lifestyle choice. The second choice that leads to the kind of joy that God daydreams for me is choosing a lifestyle of trust. Verse 2, God says, In that day you will say, I will trust and not be afraid. What does it mean to choose a lifestyle of trust? Uh, Just like the word praise is not lip service when it comes to worshiping God, Trust is not just talk. Trust is an active reliance upon God. Trust is listening to God's word instead of listening to my lust or my greed. Trust is willing to be willing to be to step out of my comfort zone to love someone who's hard to love or to serve someone God is calling me to help. Trust in God means following His ways, standing on His promises, and seeking His will, not mine, for my life. In short, trusting God is relying on Him as my infallible life coach. Uh, I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done before, and that is I'm going to read several paragraphs from an article I read uh, not too long ago in the newspaper USA Today. It's an article entitled... Can Faith Help an Olympian? Uh, And it's about the top marathon runner in our nation. His name is Ryan Hall. And although he was forced to drop out of the London Marathon due to a, a pulled hamstring, he became the first U.S. runner to break the one hour barrier in the half marathon and holds that U.S. record in that event. Ryan Hall is a world class athlete and an outspoken follower. Of Jesus. And this is how the article begins. Is it crazy for an Olympian to claim that God directs his training regimen? You would think it was from the reactions to the much publicized Christian faith of U.S. Olympic contender Ryan Hall and his recent assertion in particular that God is his coach. Ryan Hall speaks openly and boldly about God's part in his marathon running. A recent profile in the New York Times probed Hall's ideas about faith and running with unusual depth and nuance. But what stood out in the headline and the Internet sensationalizing that followed was Hall's blunt assertion that God is his coach. Last year, Hall, who does not have a human coach, went so far as to write God on his race form that asked for the name of his coach. And when an official pushed him to name a real person, he responded, God is a real person. This is the kind of thing that gets the wisecrackers going. Yet when you hear Hall out on the matter and think about the deep and subtle ways believers conceive of their communications with God in prayer, you see there is more to it than some childlike belief in God changing the flight of a ball or giving a runner an extra push. Hall, for example, says his faith allows him to run with freedom and joy. As his faith has deepened, he says, his self-worth has become less dependent on his running results, and with that has come an easing of the pressure he once felt. It is as if he used to run with a burden on his back. Now with God as his coach, he runs lighter. Marv Fremerman, the article uh, continues, a 
performance enhancement consultant and not an evangelical Christian, told me that he is convinced that athletes perform closest to their potential when their lives are in harmony. Quote, athletes who are unhappy, even angry, and whose lives are in disharmony will not perform anywhere near their skill levels. End quote. Fremerman says, when athletes have strong Christian religious beliefs, it enhances their feelings of self-worth and therefore enhances their performance in the sport. End quote. When I... I just think that this article is pretty interesting. And I wanted to read it because I think it summarizes how trust in God is tied to God's dream in your life. God sees how the only way you can excel in this life is to trust Him as your life coach. Ryan Hall says that trusting God as his coach has set him free from fear. Trusting God sets him free from performance anxiety and free from all the fears that come with having to prove your self-worth through your achievement in life. And I'm wondering if you understand, if you understand what Ryan Hall is talking about. Do you understand that this is who God wants to be in your life? God wants to be this coach in your life who so completely loves you and accepts you through Jesus that you are free to be yourself and be the best that you can be. Now, if you picture God, as a slave driver in your life who is never satisfied, who is uh, never content with you as you are, then you are not trusting God and what he says about himself. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, God says that he loves all his children in Jesus with a perfect love that casts out all fear. If you trust that God loves you and accepts you completely, it will drive out all fears of rejection, drive out all fears of failure, drive out all the performance anxieties from your life. If you trust that God loves you as he says he does in his word and has a perfect plan for your life, it will drive out the worries that come with thinking that Your life is all up to fate, or worse, it's all up to you. Just like trusting God sets Ryan Hall free to run with joy, trusting God as a lifestyle will set you free from fear. Do you notice that connection in verse 2? In that day you will say, I will trust and not be afraid. So just as praise produces comfort, so also trust produces courage. This is God's dream for you, that you would trust Him as your life coach so that you can be truly courageous, so that you can be bold, so that you can be free, so that you can find true joy. But there's one more theme to God's daydream for you. Praise produces comfort. Trust produces courage. Thanks produces contentment. This third lifestyle choice that leads to the joy God daydreams for me is thanks. God concludes his description of his daydream about me with these words in verse 4. 
In that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord. And if you're like me, uh, you think of yourself as generally grateful, as a generally grateful person. Well, unfortunately, being generally ungrateful or being generally grateful doesn't count in God's eyes. And it doesn't lead to true joy that he daydreams about you. We know that being generally grateful doesn't count with God because it didn't count with Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, Jesus met ten men who were cursed with this dreaded disease called leprosy. Leprosy meant that these ten men were doomed outcasts. They were separated from their wives and their children, and they were condemned to a slow, miserable death. But uh, they came upon Jesus, and uh, Jesus spoke a word of blessing over these ten lepers and told them that if they went to see the priest who could certify that they were clean, that on the way to the priest they would be healed. And sure enough, sometime later on the road, all ten were healed. And the story concludes with the fact that only one of the ten lepers circled back singing praises to Jesus and then falling on his feet in gratitude, thanking him for the healing. Um, And while Jesus rejoiced about the one who came back, Jesus did ask with some sadness, where are the other nine? Now, what's the point of this story? Uh, Is this story about how only one out of the ten lepers was grateful? No. All ten of these healed men were grateful. Even the nine who never circled back to thank Jesus were generally grateful. They had to be. They could now see their families. They were saved from death. Of course they were generally grateful. The point of the story is that being generally grateful doesn't count in God's eyes. The only one that counted was the one who came back singing out his gratitude to God. And this gets to what God daydreams for you. God dreams that you will not be just one of the 90% who is vaguely, generally grateful that does not lead to true joy in life. No, God dreams that you will be the one who comes back singing out your gratitude to God. And did you notice that connection to singing? Verse 5 says, sing to the Lord. Verse 6, sing for joy. In fact, uh, verse 2 says, God, you have become my song. Is the Bible saying uh, that the language of, uh, of singing is uh, special? Yes. In the language of the Bible... Singing is the sound of true contentment. Singing is the language of a contented soul. Singing is the overflow of gratitude from a heart that has specific gratitude, not just some general uh, thankfulness. And this is what God dreams for you. God dreams that you would have this habit of thankfulness, not just on this week, but every week. Where else you have a lifestyle of gratitude that will produce in you a constant melody of contentment. So this is what God has in mind as he daydreams about you. God dreams that your life would be marked with praise that produces comfort, trust that produces courage, and thanks that produces contentment. But there's one more theme in God's dream for you. The chapter ends with these words of verse 5. In that day, 
You will say, give thanks to the Lord, call in his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. God dreams that you would be so close in friendship with him and that your friendship would make your life so full and so rich and so joyous that you must share with others the sweetness of this relationship with God. Share with others in your world. And this constitutes a reality check for all of us. I may think that I'm living the dream of praise and trust and thanks, but If I am silent when it comes to my relationship with God, then I'm probably fooling myself. God's dream for me is a relationship with Him that is so good, so sweet, so life-changing, that I must express it to sing about it in a way that I can share it with the people in my world. I just returned from the African nation of Tanzania, which is a wonderful land, unfortunately, with many who are trapped in grinding poverty. And I saw village after village where children wear muddy rags and play on dirt roads all day long because they have no access to school. But here and there, where churches like Blackrock have made a difference, there are villages that have schools. And at These schools are like an island of joy in the midst of some real suffering. The children wear white shirts and school uniforms. The children start each day in the playground singing happy songs. And my team rolled into one of these schools to bring a message and some much-needed school supplies. And we also brought a few pieces of candy and a pen for each child. And as we were handing out the candy and uh, the pens to some 400 children in the school, we saw something which broke our hearts. And uh, we saw lining up on the fence surrounding the school scores of rag-wearing children who had their faces pressed up against the fence because they came from villages without a school. And all they could do was look in with envy at the children who wore the white clothes and were singing and had received candy and a pen. And our hearts broke because we didn't have uh, candy left over for these sad children. But out of the 400 who received candy, I saw one child who walked over to the fence and he shared with those who were on the outside. And it occurred to me that this is God's dream for me and for you. God's greatest dream is that we would become children who are so transformed by the comfort and the courage and the contentment that comes with a lifestyle of praise and trust and thanks that we reach out to those who are on the outside and share with them the sweetness of what we have found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, found only in Him. And this is what goes through God's mind when He daydreams about you. God dreams about a day when you live this kind of joy and you can make this dream come true today.